0: In 1920, the most famous person who had ever lived, Charlie Chaplin, got divorced. Shortly thereafter, he was walking down the street and he was bit by a mosquito. That mosquito escaped with its life and went back and fed its kids. A mosquito generation takes about a month. There are 10 generations a year. That means that since Charlie Chaplin's mosquito had its kids, there have been 1,000 generations of mosquitoes. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk surprisingly about talent, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. And then a seven-year-old kid in in Texas starts knocking on doors, and he's asking for his age in dollars. 77, 777. He raises 22 grand. And we said, wow, this is a big idea. You know, everybody in the world could care about clean water. Everybody in the world has a birthday every year. And we have enough stuff. What if we could turn the birthday into a giving moment, into an unselfish day, our birthdays, so people could live longer and have birthdays? To find out more, visit charitywater.org. So this is a really short podcast, a rant, more likely, about talent. 1,000 generations of mosquitoes between Charlie Chaplin's mosquito and that one that was buzzing in your ear last night when you were trying to sleep. The DNA of those mosquitoes is almost indistinguishable. Mosquitoes have not evolved much in the last 100 years. In the United Kingdom, there used to be an enormous number of dead hedgehogs on the road, because hedgehogs are really stupid and really slow, and they would get stranded in the middle of the road and get run over. Hedgehogs have evolved in the last hundred years, as most of the slow, stupid ones are dead, didn't have kids, and so the ones that are left are better at hiding out, and that's why you don't see hedgehogs on the road as often as you used to. And then there's the famous case of moths, which evolved to change from white to gray as pollution and soot covered the white cliffs of Dover and other parts of the United Kingdom. But back to the mosquitoes, and let's talk about humans. 1,000 generations. If we figure that a typical human generation is 20 years, that means that your, to the 1,000th ancestor, lived 20 years years ago. 20,000 years ago, there was no farming. There was almost nothing in the way of organized culture and manufacturing. It was entirely hunters and gatherers. And if we went back in time and swapped babies from today to 20,000 years ago, no one would be able to tell them apart. Genetically, there might have been some drift and some small differences, But it is absurd to think that we evolved to get better at playing cricket or programming computers or painting paintings. These are cultural artifacts. They are not genetic traits. And so one of the many challenges that I have with things like the Myers-Briggs personality test is not that people don't have personalities. Of course we do. It's not that some people are born with a certain instinct toward one sort of behavior or another, of course we are. It's that they're horoscopes. It's that culture creates such a wide variety of personalities that are suitable for various jobs that it's absurd to look at a few letters of the alphabet juxtaposed with one another and assume that tells you if you should be an insurance adjuster or a volunteer fireman. That's not the way jobs in our culture actually work. I've studied thousands of leaders. I've studied tens of thousands of creatives. And here's what I've discovered. Leaders have exactly one thing in common. They lead. Some of them have charisma. Some of them don't. Some of them stutter. Some of them don't. Some of them are tall. Some of them aren't. And the same thing's true for people who ship creative work. Some of them are garrulous. They can't get through the day without interacting with other people, slapping them on the back. The pandemic is the worst thing that's happened to their social life. Others are painfully shy. They've trained all their lives to stay home on their own. They don't have a lot in common other than they choose to do creative work. Growing up in Buffalo, New York, I didn't know one person who was good at cricket. Is that because there's some sort of trait that makes people from New Zealand or Australia or India good at cricket? but not people in Buffalo, New York? Of course not. It's simply that the culture doesn't encourage people to play cricket. They say Wayne Gretzky is an off the charts talent, that he was born to play hockey. Well, except almost no one plays hockey. Fewer than 1% of the people on earth have ever played a game of hockey. And I'm not sure that Wayne Gretzky would have been untalented at something else. Now, there are personality traits, there are instincts we have to head toward one thing or another, but it's a mistake to imagine that we are precluded from doing anything simply because what our DNA says. And that, of course, leads to the crime of racial injustice. That what we've done is invented this narrative about what people look like and have determined that that somehow means that they're going to behave one way or another. But there's zero correlation between what people look like and what they are capable of being good at. And yes, it's a crime. It's a crime against all of us when we say to somebody, because you look like this, you aren't able to do that. As I hope we can understand, almost nothing in our modern culture is driven by how we were wired at birth. We get good at things because we do them. And we do them because the culture encourages us or gives us the opportunity to do things. And that leads to the story we tell ourselves. If we tell ourselves the story that we weren't born to do something, that we don't have any good ideas, that we're not suitable to lead or to do serious work or to make commitments, we've been brainwashed, we've been indoctrinated, we have been tricked into believing something that is clearly not true. Of course, none of us are as flexible or as plastic as we'd like to be, particularly as we get older, particularly as we get grooved into whatever pattern we're in. It's harder and harder to switch. But just because it's difficult to switch doesn't mean it's impossible. And there are more doors open than ever before. And so the question is, what is keeping us From going through the door. There's a thing called an invisible fence. And the way it works is you put a battery powered collar around your dog, and then you bury a wire in the yard with lots of white flags so that the dog can see where the flags are. And then you train the dog so that every time the dog goes near the white flag, a little buzz goes off in their collar. And then, if the dog goes a little further, they get a small shock like a pinch. I'm pretty sure it's not kind to the dog, but almost every dog I've ever seen who is properly trained at this only gets the pinch a couple times. And then they associate the buzz, the buzz the collar makes, with the fact that a pinch might come if they don't stop. And this invisible fence works really well. It works so well that most owners can take the batteries out of the collar because the batteries aren't the point anymore that what's happened is the dog itself has decided to go nowhere near the white flags. And part of the myth of our genetic makeup of talent is that we have been pushed and trained to go nowhere near the white flags, even though the doors are open, even though you can show up and lead or make a podcast or have a blog or connect people or start something or make things better. And so we need to take a hard look at what's possible. There are problems all around us, the worst of my lifetime, but we're going to make them go away. And we'll do that by working with each other, by opening the doors for five people or 10 people, not with one fell swoop, but from the grassroots, from the people who care, doing work that matters for people who are ready to receive that work. And yeah, We can learn how to do this better, and we have to stop saying, I wasn't born to do that. My personality test tells me I can't do that. It's for other people because it's for us. Thanks for listening. Go make a ruckus. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from last time, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey. It's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. as you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button.
2: Hi, Seth. This is Barack again from Israel, now in San Diego, California. I'm thinking a lot about failure recently. My last question to you was about failure too. It seems to me like failure slash fear is the single most critical mindset obstacle we should overcome. I heard you many times arguing to dance with it when you talk about fail and fear. I think I understand what you mean, and my reference is always the mindset of Zorba the Greek about dancing, which I understood is embracing fear and failure with joy as they are part or even maybe the essence of being alive. But maybe I got it all wrong. Can you please elaborate what you mean by dance with it? Thank you, Seth, for your teaching. It had transformed my life and the life of the people around me.
0: I think there are two messages that Zorba is trying to teach us. The first one is, life is more interesting if you play it to make a difference. Life is more interesting if you get out of your head and connect with other people. Life is more interesting if you treat it as an adventure. And then the second thing, as captured in the final scene of the movie, is even if it doesn't work out, even if it's a catastrophic ending, it's still better to dance than to not dance. That, yes, it might not work the way you hoped, but mourning the fact that it didn't work the way you hoped doesn't make anything better. We only get today once. What? will we do with it? So when I talk about dancing with fear, I'm not saying that the dancing will make the fear go away. What I'm saying is the fear is going to be there no matter what. So you might as well dance.
1: Hey, boys, did you ever see a more splendid crash? Hey, Seth, this is Dave from Durham, North Carolina. I have a question about your question and answer podcast. The first question asked in that podcast was from a tech person who was asking, why didn't the experienced teachers in his family accept his advice about how to do distance learning? And in your answer, and really in his question, was the underlying implication that people should follow the advice and follow new ideas. You just implement them. Though in my experience, many, if not most new ideas aren't worth following, aren't particularly good. Indeed, in the education field, and I am a teacher, we talk about the flavor of the month. What should we do in the classroom this month? And then there's something next month because the original idea did not work. So my question is this. How do you think practitioners can distinguish between good ideas, new ideas, and bad new ideas? Are there any criteria we should be looking for? Thanks, Seth. And thanks for all you do in your podcasts.
0: Thank you for this question, Dave. It's a fine question because if we think about education over the last 200 years, there is almost nothing in classroom pedagogy that is the same as it was in the 1800s. We're not walking around hitting kids with rulers. We're not reciting page after page from the primer. We don't have one-room schoolhouses, generally. We're not, I mean, I can go on and on. School keeps changing, and sometimes it changes for the better. We have figured out a way to teach a lot of people a lot of things, but it's not there yet. It's not even close to there yet. And I think part of the question we need to ask ourselves is, is what I'm doing right now working, regardless of whether there is an alternative, is this method, the one I have right now, worth my time, worth my students' time? Here's what we have seen over the last nine months. Turning classroom education into online education is not working. That the powers that be, the bureaucracy, the ones that have tried to cram classroom learning into a Zoom room have failed, have categorically failed. By every measure they hold to be important, they have failed. And they call it online learning, but it's not learning. It's a failed attempt at education. And I hope people who are doing their best, who are exhausted, who are seeking to make things better for kids, for parents, for teachers, all of them can begin by acknowledging that the status quo is not working. That makes it a lot easier to try something new. Something new might work better. And one of the frustrations I've had since I started Akimbo five years ago is that Akimbo has pioneered, proven, and demonstrated again and again alternatives, online learning that actually works. For adults, yes, but the principles, the pedagogy, are there for anyone Who wants to grab it? And yet, the status quo and the bureaucracy didn't want to have anything to do with it before the pandemic. And now, now that distance learning, there it is in quotation marks, is mandated, they're still relying on in person education crammed into a remote setting. So I share the original questioner's frustration, which is if what you've got isn't working and you need to spend the cycles anyway, Why not try something new? So yes, I totally hear your frustration. First, it's the new math, and then the new math doesn't work. I learned how to read from ITA. I had to learn a whole new alphabet just to learn to read, and then I had to unlearn that alphabet to learn to read real books. That was a bad idea. So yeah, there are plenty of bad ideas in education, in learning, in pedagogy. Yes, some people should be the explorers, the pioneers, and others should learn from them. But we cannot dismiss innovation out of hand, particularly when we're spending so much time and so much money on a system that can work better than it does. So I'm in favor of taking our time, of testing it, of measuring it, of seeing what works. But I'm even more in favor of trying things, because trying things is how we make things better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you
3: next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age, and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. you know. And none of us can do that better than the Internet, right? Um, There is no great thought leader who can outthink the Internet. Like, we have data. What All-NBA Gets Right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good, you got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you are going to show up, when are you going to face that blank page, when are you going to face the possibilities within you, when are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide, you got to show up, and that's the hardest part, and It sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.